Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, on the Becoming Your Best podcast, and we have a terrific guest with us today. He's one of the world's leading experts on trust. With over 20 years experience, his PhD, Building Trust in Hostile Environments from Duke University, established him as a global leader for governments, businesses, NGOs on practical approaches to building trust. And so before we get started, I'd just like to welcome Daryl Stickle. Steve, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you and your listeners. Well, thank you, Daryl. And we've had the chance to visit a little bit before, and this podcast is going to be terrific. And we're so glad that you could join us today as listeners. We're privileged to have you here. We love your spirit. I was telling Daryl before we begin the nature of those that listen to the Becoming Your Best podcast. They're people that just want to do better. They're people that want to make a difference, and not only as leaders, but as individuals, and they do have a huge influence. And what we're going to talk about today is a big part of that. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Daryl, and then we'll jump right into our interview. Daryl has worked for McKinsey and Company in their Toronto office. He is a Canadian. Woohoo! Huzzah! Yeah, our good neighbors. <laughs> as well as advise the Canadian military on trust building in Afghanistan. He has served as faculty for the Luxembourg School of Business and the Center of Effective Organizations at the University of Southern Cal and recently completed his book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. It's never been needed more, Daryl. I agree. Trust levels are some of the lowest we've ever seen. Now I'll say his contribution to the field of trust has been recognized by his nomination to the top thought leaders on trust by Trust Across America and Trust Around the World. Let's just jump into this. Daryl, tell us about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you, and especially how you got into what you're doing today. Right. So there's a, a saying by Kierkegaard that life makes sense in retrospect. <laughs> it makes sense looking backwards, but we live forwards. And so I was born and raised in a small community in Northern Canada. The conditions were harsh at times. You know, it was minus 40 fairly often and we were pretty isolated. And so that meant that people had to pull together. You didn't just drive past your neighbor if they were stuck on the side of the road. 
And there was this sense that if you could help someone, you should. And that was very embedded in me from an early age. When I was growing up, I knew that I was going to lose my sight. I'm legally blind. Me and my guide dog, Drake, kind of wander the earth trying to make the, the world a better place. But I knew I was losing my sight and that I would need to be able to train myself to think for a living. I was headed down that path. And then there was a detour that came along when I was 17. I was playing junior hockey. I was attacked by a fan with a club, shattered my helmet, knocked me unconscious. I was then attacked by a player while I was unconscious. I ended up with a pretty severe concussion. And it was the mid-80s when we didn't really know a lot about concussions and head injuries and those kinds of things. So all of a sudden, here I was, somebody who had planned to live his life thinking for a living, not able to think. I had the attention span of a fruit fly. That experience really gave me a sense of what it felt like to be helpless and hopeless and to feel lost. For some reason, you know, I eventually went to university and I was at the University of Victoria and I'd be sitting on the bus and, and people just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And I wanted to understand what it was that made complete strangers open up to me and talk with me. What was it that made it feel safe to do that? So I thought I should probably pursue a, a field of study or an area of interest that, that aligns with this, that takes advantage of, of those skills that I seem to have. I also thought if this is going to keep happening, maybe I should get paid for this. <laughs> so I went into psychology. I was studying to become a clinical psychologist. I worked with families in crisis and troubled teens and worked on crisis lines and all those kinds of things. And, and Steve, I came to realize that a lot of the folks I was working with were just doing the best they could. And that even if you found a path forward for them, they would struggle to take it. And I thought, this is going to drive me insane. And so I ended up shifting and went into public administration, doing a master's degree in public admin. I ended up working in native land claims here in British Columbia. And the they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, man, that's a good question. And so I went to Duke and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments because I wanted to understand those long-term disputes, why they're so resilient, why they're so hard for us to pull apart. Well, that's a great background. Thank you. I was just thinking, I lost the sight in my left eye eight years ago. So between the two of us, we have one eye. That's pretty good. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we got four ears. <laughs> good job. Amen. And that helps a lot. Well, it does. Bless you. That's an inspiration. And we've got so many questions about trust. And I want to hear about your book. And let's just start right off at the organizational level. Keeping in mind that I know all, everything we talk about, particularly in this area, in this arena, can be applied in our personal life and in our relationships. But let's start at the corporate level. How can CEOs or key leaders of an organization build trust with their teams and organization? So that's a great question. And, and partly you're getting right to the root of the problem, which is a lack of awareness. Because we often don't know who we trust or how much we trust them. When I ask people, who do you trust? They, they'll give me these sort of close, tight personal relationships, right? Like best friend, spouse, sibling. And the reality is, Steve, that we trust people all the time. Go to a restaurant. 
We get in a cab. We get on an airplane. We trust people constantly, and it's the social lubricant that allows society to function. And when I flip that question and I say, who trusts you? I get this really long pause. Eventually, someone will say, well, how would I know? How do I know if someone trusts me or not? And what we need to understand is, is what the definition is for trust. And it's, it's the willingness to make ourselves vulnerable when we can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. So there's elements of uncertainty and vulnerability there. And so when we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first is, how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad's it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability? And it's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. So building trust becomes a simple matter of understanding where does uncertainty come from and how do I take steps to reduce it? Where does vulnerability come from? How do I take steps to manage that for the other person? And for me, there are 10 different levers that we can pull. And I try to go through this in as much detail as possible in the book. I tried to make it incredibly accessible and incredibly applied. And so what I do is I systematically walk people through the 10 levers. In my book, my masterclass, the courses I teach, we go through these 10 levers and talk about how to pull them. Because we all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. And so for those who aren't very good, they have a lever that they pull. Usually it's the ability lever, right? I have these kinds of credentials, this background, this much experience. Those who are better at building trust have multiple levers that they pull. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And so for senior executives, if they want to build trust with those they lead, they need to start by understanding, how do I reduce uncertainty for folks? How do I create clarity? Uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and it comes from the context that we're embedded in, the rules of the game. and. There's a few places where my research really differentiates itself from most of the other stuff out there. One place is that it's, it includes this notion of context, which allows us to understand why we trust some people without knowing anything about them. You said the social context? Is that what I heard? No, it's, it's our context. So part of that social, part of it's structural. Okay, our context. Okay. Yeah. And so if you go to a doctor's office and the doctor says, take off your clothes, you do. That tends not to happen in other places, Steve, right? And if, if we change that example to a, a bathroom at a gas station, you could have the same two people, same conversation, dressed the same way, and it goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat, right? And so understanding the role that context plays and how the rules, the formal rules and the informal rules influence our behavior can really reduce people's uncertainty. For us as individuals, there's three levers that we talk about, and this is you, know, you had mentioned uh, Stephen Covey's speed of trust stuff. This is really where that focuses is on our individual trustworthiness. And the, the three levers that are most often used are benevolence, integrity, and ability. And benevolence is that belief that you've got my best interest at heart, that you'll act in my best interest. Integrity is do I follow through on my commitments and do my actions line up with the values that I express? And ability is do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? So that's four of the 10 levers from the model. There's benevolence, integrity, ability, and context. Each of those is a place that we can lean in to try to reduce uncertainty for somebody else to build trust. 
Okay, good. Well, that's a good start. In other words, as a leader or CEO, what I can do to have a culture of trust in my team or organization is to understand what are the right levers and appropriately pull and use those levers to build that trust. So people know where they're going, right? There's clarity. They can feel safety and confidence, and it's considerate, and it allows them to become their best because they know where we're going, and they can engage in it. And realizing that we just don't assume because there's going to be uncertainty in some people's lives and vulnerability. So you have to give them a clear pathway. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, a lot of times when I work with senior executives, we face a couple of challenges, Steve. One is 95% of people believe they're more trustworthy than average, which is not only statistically impossible, it's also damaging because a lot of times when they recognize a trust problem, which we don't always recognize, but when they do, they assume it's somebody else's fault. And so they don't take ownership. They don't step in to make changes. They don't invest time and energy in, in trying to make things better. The other is, is that I talk about all these levers. If I'm trying to be benevolent to you and I think I'm benevolent, I hear so many senior leaders say, well, I do all those things. And my response is, says who? Because for me to think I'm benevolent is one thing, but it's got to land for you, Steve. If I'm building trust with you, you have to think I'm benevolent. And when I work with families, I'll stand in front of the parents and I'll, I'll say, how many of you here have your kids' best interest at heart? And all the hands go up. But when I change the question and I say, how many of your kids would say that? It's about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. And so if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how do we pull that lever effectively as a senior leader or as a spouse or as a, a colleague? Well, we have to include the other person in that conversation. You know, we have to get a sense from them of what their best interests are, what success looks like for them. And so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll give people a template. I'll say, I want you to practice this because what I've found is that, you know, a lot of people are talking about trust, but they're not talking about what to do about it. And so we go right down to basics. And I say, benevolence is this belief you've got my best interest at heart. And it doesn't always land that way. And so here's the conversation I want you to practice. And, and your listeners can practice this with someone. You go to them and you say, I heard this guy, Daryl, he was talking about trust. He said, benevolence is really important. You know, and it's a big word, but basically it means, do I have your best interests? You know, will I look out for you? And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person's going to go, oh yeah. Yeah, I tried to do something nice for someone and they were annoyed by it or frustrated by it. For me personally, I tried to help another blind person navigate something and I messed it up terribly, right? And he finally just looked at me and said, stop helping. <laughs> and so now we start to narrow the funnel a bit and we say, well, has someone ever really had your back? Have you ever really felt like someone had your best interest at heart? What did they do? What did that look like? How did it feel? And now we're priming them. They're starting to get a sense of, okay, yeah, we're, we're getting hints about what benevolence looks like for them, what matters to them. Then we're going to narrow the funnel further and we're going to say, what does success look like for you and how do I help you get there? What would it look like if I was benevolent to you? And now we've created an opportunity for transparency because we've created a situation where we can refer back and say, you remember when you told me this is what success looked like for you? This is me trying to help you get there. 
Good, good, thoughtful stuff. You know, these are things that build trust. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they create a bond between you and a feeling and an interest. And when you show that level of interest in another person, they will just bust their pick to help you succeed. That's just it, right? And I I get people to practice these skills and they go, well, it felt a little awkward. It's not something that's right in my wheelhouse just yet. But man, was the response positive, right? Because the other person just wants to see you try. Well, good. I was just thinking about some of these levers that you're talking about. And we started with the organization and we can come back to the organization, but let's shift to our personal lives just for a moment, relationships. And let's just imagine that maybe there's a a broken relationship or a strained relationship between a couple and it's really not working right now. Or maybe they've had a broken relationship with a child or somebody else. So how can they work their way back? One of the more powerful moments for me was working when I was teaching MBA students in Luxembourg. I would get them all to apply the model to a relationship as part of their course as part of the class. That was one of their tasks. And one of my students said that he wanted to practice with his five and three-year-old sons. He said, the relationship's broken. I've been away for most of their lives working. When I'm around them, I don't know what to do. I'm terrified. I react badly. And I think it's broken forever. So we started to talk through the different elements of the model, right? So how do I show integrity? How do I show benevolence? How do I show ability? Because we all have this notion of, oh, I know what ability is. But before we started this podcast, I asked you what excellence was. And we have to include the other person in the the definition. And so at the end of three months, his final report was, things have changed completely. My kids run to me now. They throw themselves on me. They tell me they love me constantly. They fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner, right? And so... Really, it's about understanding these different levers that we can pull and including the other person in that conversation, having some empathy for them. And so one of the challenges, particularly when it comes to kids, is we think about their best interest today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years down the road. We don't hold ourselves to that, right? I don't do things today that are going to help me 10 years from now. And yet we have this expectation for our kids. And they're thinking about right now. And so we have to help them in the moment to be successful so that we earn the right to talk about later, so that we start to develop that story for them that we have their back. And for my kids, I start with a relentlessly positive story about them. And sometimes when we have these conflicts, one of the downsides of writing a doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments is you end up in a lot of hostile environments. I frequently get exposed to folks who are struggling to get along. And a big part of what I do is I'll talk to each of them individually and say, what's your story? Because we interpret the world through stories. And I'll get each of them to tell me their story separately. And then I bring them together and I say, person one, I want you to tell me person two's story. What do you think their story is? It forces them to think about it and to try to be empathetic. And it allows us to correct misperceptions. And we start to put together a shared narrative, a shared story, which reduces the number of miscommunications. And then I'll reverse it and I'll say, okay, person two, now you tell me what you think person one's story is. And it provokes this level of understanding 
that we may not have otherwise. It provokes us to think about the other person, to have some level of empathy and understanding. Let's just go a little deeper, if you don't mind, Daryl. Let's take a, a married couple or partners. How can they build high trust? Whether it's broken right now or not, or whether it's already a good relationship, what can they do, the most important things to build a high trust so that they feel like they're linked together? So trust is a willingness to be vulnerable. One of the things that we're asking people to do when we're asking them to trust us is to be vulnerable to us. What we need to do is go first. And so a lot of times people will ask me, how do I start? Well, I get people to lead with their imperfections, to acknowledge that they're not perfect, and take that first step of, I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable first, because it sends a signal to the other person that it's okay to be vulnerable back. And then we start with some benevolence. We start by asking, what does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? I had a student who were sitting down, we're we're going around the room. I said, give me a relationship that matters to you. And he said, well, my girlfriend. I said, great. What matters to your girlfriend? What's most important to her? And he said, I think family. I said, here's the conversation you're going to have tonight. You're going to say to your girlfriend, I was in class. My professor asked me about a relationship that mattered to me. And I, I said, you, I thought about you. So that's step one. We're showing the other person we're thinking about them. I said, then you're going to say to her, he asked me what mattered most to you. And I said, family, is that right? Now you're giving her the opportunity to agree or disagree. You're inviting her into the conversation, getting her feedback. When she says yes, you're going to say then, I think it probably really matters to you that I get along well with your family. Testing a hypothesis, right? Checking in, giving her a chance to disagree again. And when she says, yeah, that would really be great. Then you say to her, I'm going to start spending more time with your family. I'm going to have more conversations with them. I'm going to go for lunches with them and coffees with them. Going to try to build a stronger relationship with your family because it matters to you. Now we're transparent. And the next day he came back, he had this huge grin on his face. He said, that went really well. And he said, my girlfriend says, I'm allowed to talk to you whenever I want. What's next? Right? And so that's how we start. We make ourselves a little bit vulnerable. We find a way to be benevolent, to show the caring and concern we have, to make sure it lands. Right? We include that other person in the conversation. You know, good answer. Okay, I like that. It's a good starting point. Yeah, I think it opens the gates where people can start connecting and, and uh, building together. Regardless of where they're at, it takes the courage to do it because sometimes people kind of start building walls and somebody's got to start it and somebody needs to do the right things. Well, I, I was working with a couple and one of the partners said, you know, the other one just kept bringing up this mistake that they'd made 10 years ago. And I looked at the other partner and I said, do you lay awake sometimes at night giving thanks to God that that person made that mistake so that you can continue to beat them up with it? Like hold it over their head, use it in every <laughs> argument that ever comes along. <laughs> and they kind of went, well, no. I said, okay. Because what that message sends is I can't make mistakes. I have to be perfect. I can't even acknowledge that I've made a mistake or share with you that I'm flawed. Mm -hmm because you won't accept me. That's the hole that leaders find themselves in. That's the hole that couples find themselves in. We need to give each other a bit of grace, Steve. As, as one of the most flawed human beings on the planet, I mean, 
I'm a strong advocate for people giving each other a little bit of space and grace to be imperfect. And every time we try something new, Steve, we're, we're, we're not going to be great at it. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail to thrive in the first steps. And, and we need to be able to make mistakes. So for a lot of my leaders, I say to them, here's what I want you to say to, you, to those you lead. What made me a good leader 10 years ago is not the same thing that makes me a good leader today. And I'm going to learn and grow and develop. What makes me a great leader three years from now is going to be different. And I'm going to have to try new things and explore and accept new responsibilities. I will stumble. I may fall. When I do, my expectation is that you'll be there, helping me get back up, dusting me off, helping me learn from the mistakes that I will make, because that's exactly what I'm going to do for you. I cannot tell you how beyond stunned I am that we are at the end of our podcast. This has gone so fast. Oh, my goodness. So let's wrap up with this today, Daryl. Thank you for our discussion that we're having. It's been terrific. I've loved it. What are some final tips that you can provide to our listeners that are most important regarding trust? So become more aware. Trust is a skill that we can all get better at. Building trust is a skill, and it's a thing that allows you to take control of your life. It's one of the things that differentiates leaders from being merely acceptable to truly exceptional. It's a place where we can invest time and energy. The relationships in your life are worth investing in. So I'm not trying to flog product, but buy the book. One of the things that's really powerful is a shared vocabulary. So buy the book for yourself and someone that you care about that you want to have a conversation about trust, about how we build stronger relationships together. Because it'll give you not only a shared vocabulary and a shared sort of model and structure to think through, but there's applied segments in there that'll show you how to ask questions, how to pull these different levers. So there's the book, there's the masterclass. They can go to my website, trustunlimited.com. In the about section, you can see my, my guide dog, Drake. He's the director of goodness for my company, the DOG. And if you have questions for me, just reach out. It's Daryl at TrustUnlimited.com. Okay. Well, this has been fun. I've loved it and want to be sure that everybody knows how to reach you. So one more time, the best way to reach you? Daryl at TrustUnlimited.com. D-A-R-R-Y-L at TrustUnlimited.com. Perfect. Well, it's been a delight to have you on the show today, Daryl. Thank you for your thoughts, for the work that you're doing. And I know we've scratched the surface and but what we have talked about are some really actionable things that you and I can do. And yeah, yeah so it's been worthwhile today. And I wish you the best in, in all that you're doing going forward. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. And thanks to all your listeners for tuning in. Yeah, you bet. Well, this is Steve Schallenberger thanking you for joining us today and wishing you a great day. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. 
We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.